This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writer. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST from the week you can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring coming up columnist marina hyde on why law enforcement agents search of trump's mar-a-lago result will just give the former president another reason to run in 2024 Journalist Simon Hattonstone sits down with the much lionised British diver Tom Daly to discuss how making a documentary about gay rights led to a revelation. And finally, in the wake of a dramatic rise in the number of people suffering with health anxiety, columnist Annalisa Barbieri reveals what triggered and eventually settled her late-onset hypochondria. Now, following the United States Department of Justice's, or Trump's preferred term, the Democrats, evening raid this week, the former president begins another round of faux poll clutching. 
The speed with which the 45th president is already exploiting the fawning outrage of his followers over Monday night's visit by soliciting for donations is unsurprising. And, as Marina Hyde warns here, it has all the hallmarks of the inevitable announcement of a 2024 presidential run. Read by Serena Mantegi. Devastating news for the future Trump presidential library. Already suffering acute supply problems after recent reports that the former US president frequently ripped up presidential papers and clogged toilets with them, home and abroad. Monday night, the FBI carried out a raid on Mar-a-Lago, the Palm Beach mansion in which Trump currently resides, sharing only several of its communal areas with paying Floridians. The raid, or assault, as Trump would have it, is thought to be related to his already proven removal of records from the White House at the end of his administration, but could reasonably be linked to a number of active lawsuits and investigations currently being faced by the 45th president. Even so, it's a development that has hit Trump and his family hard. Or opportunely, depending on how you look at it. And more on that later. These are dark times for our nation, began an overnight statement by the former president, talking like a Star Wars opening crawl. Trump went on to say his property was under siege, which feels a little histrionic. Surely this was just a harmless law enforcement rally that mildly got out of hand, though not in a way that saw five people end up dead, a gibbet erected on the croquet lawn, and small state golfers barricading themselves into executive restrooms in genuine and rational fear of their lives. Alas, that wasn't the line which the presiding inspo for the Capitol riots decided to go with with Trump instead putting the monstrous impertinence of the FBI in perspective with the howl, they even broke into my safe. Lest you imagined you had hallucinated this attack line, Donald's etiolated adult son Eric could be found honking it over on Fox News, where, as I am typing this, the story is currently being headlined, Biden's FBI ransacks the home of potential 2024 opponent. As Eric declared with incredulity, they broke into a safe? I mean, give me a break. You'll be hugely taken with this notion that a safe is your special private place that no one should ever touch, a kind of supralegal repository whose contents are automatically placed beyond the legitimate attentions of any and all law enforcement agencies, no matter the gravity of federal crimes being alleged, and no matter how loudly your political opponents shriek, but his safe, or simply lock him up. As yet, there are no details of where, in Mar-a-Lago, Trump's safe was located, though students of the resort's interiors style will hope it was concealed behind the 1989 portrait of him entitled The Visionary. To be clear, I'm not talking about the nine-foot painting of himself that Trump paid for with $60,000 meant for charity, but the one where he's wearing cricket whites as sunbeams break through some celestial clouds behind his head and his expression says simply, I dare you to report what I'm about to do to you, sweetheart. FBI raids on former presidents, filing stuff in the U-Bend, another hugely uplifting 24 hours in politics. Not for the first time, much of the most unwittingly revealing commentary on it 
all comes from Trump himself, who says of the raid, Nothing like this has ever happened to a president of the United States before. Well, quite. Meanwhile, plenty of his most powerful supporters have lost no time in informing Americans that if this can happen to the former president, then the ordinary people are next. And yet, and yet, are they? Of all the things to lose sleep over in the contemporary US, the imminent peril of dozens of FBI agents turning up on your doorstep and finding classified presidential records among your ironing is arguably not one of them. Still, what kind of world are we living in when a man of the people is treated like one of the people? The whole business has appalled freedom-loving anti-elitist Nigel Farage, who this morning announced himself to be shocked by the FBI's presence at Trump's property, before concluding that the deep state truly does exist. Carry yourself with the moral and intellectual consistency of Nigel, who believes that rich and powerful men who are the subject of multiple active criminal investigations should be above the law, while he himself has previously endorsed a US political candidate who, among other things, believes that all homosexuality should be made illegal. A huge number of grim prospects are coming down the slipway. But the virtually locked-on prospect of Nigel using the cost-of-living crisis to respawn over the next year or so is definitely up there. For now, more immediate respawnings are available. Trump is already fundraising off the outrage his winged monkeys are whipping up after Monday night's raid, and attacking its very legitimacy. Democrats broke into the home of the 45th president was the way he characterised the actions of an FBI whose lifelong Republican director he personally chose for the job. As so often in the rabbit hole down which Trump has led us, I fear the news of the raid is not the unalloyed delight that many of his detractors may be celebrating it as. It surely makes it more, not less likely, that his 2024 presidential run will be announced in short order very possibly breaking his agreement to hold off before the midterms. After days like these, what does he really have to lose, barring other people's money? Each new probe is an added incentive to win and shut it down, pausing or permanently halting any number of lawsuits and painting all reasonable investigations as clearly politically motivated or, just like before, an attempt at simple electoral theft. Never mind five towns ago, we passed rational five years ago. For all the drama of Monday night, the way back still remains entirely unclear. That was yet more disgrace for Trump as the FBI raid Mar-a-Lago. Of course he's milking it. By Marina Hyde. Read by Serena Mantegi. Next. Olympic diver Tom Daly is known as much for his openness around his sexuality here in the UK as he is about his diving. But despite the perceived British liberal values that have allowed this openness, when it comes to the criminalisation of homosexuality in Commonwealth countries, Daly has discovered the UK has much to answer for. Here he sits down with journalist Simon Hattonstone to discuss his documentary, Illegal To Be Me, 
and finds the journey to be both a revelation and more complicated than he first imagined. Read by Zoe Gleaves. Tom Daly sounds as if he's still in shock. Britain's most celebrated diver recently returned from visiting various Commonwealth countries to investigate LGBTQ rights. Of course, he knew there were issues. That, in much of the Commonwealth, homosexuality is still criminalised thanks to the British Empire exporting draconian homophobic laws to the colonies in the 19th century. But knowing something is different from meeting the people who live with those threats on a daily basis. It has changed so many of his views, he says, not least on what it means to be British. It all started last October, when he said during a TV interview that he didn't think countries with discriminatory LGBTQ laws should be allowed to host major international sporting events. He was then invited to deliver Channel 4's alternative Christmas message, by which time he had refined his position. In 2022, the World Cup is being held in the second most dangerous country for queer people, Qatar. Why are we allowing places that aren't safe for all fans and for all players to host our most prestigious sporting events? Hosting a World Cup is an honour. Why are we honouring them? Holding a Formula One Grand Prix is an honour. Why are we honouring Saudi Arabia? Earlier this year, BBC producers suggested that in the build-up to the 2022 Commonwealth Games, he should find out for himself just how hard it is to live as a gay athlete in countries that criminalise homosexuality. Making the resulting documentary sickened and inspired him in equal measure. Since then, he's done a vault fast about banning homophobic countries from hosting major sports events and created a manifesto for LGBTQ inclusiveness that he is hoping will be co-opted by the committees for everything from the Commonwealth Games to the Olympics. Daly has so much to say that he doesn't quite know where to start, so it all pours out at once. There are so many horror stories. I met an athlete in Jamaica who came in a hoodie and sat behind a curtain with her voice distorted. She didn't want me to know her name because their lives are in danger if they are named. In Lahore, I spoke to an athlete that had to remain anonymous because she is incredibly high profile. She had a gay friend who was killed, stoned in the streets. An athlete in Nigeria told me one of his friends got lured in on a dating app and then was stabbed to death and left to die in a pool of his own blood. Again, he stops, appalled. Did you know 35 of the 56 countries involved in the Commonwealth Games still criminalise same-sex relationships, and seven have the death penalty? The figures are tripping off his tongue now, but they still clearly have the power to disturb him. In any of these 35 countries, it is illegal to be me. I went on such a wild learning curve, he says. Daly is zooming from the London home which he shares with his husband, Oscar-winning filmmaker Dustin Lance Black, and their four-year-old son, Robbie. A stuffed giraffe towers over Daly. To his side is a knitted squid, and on the wall is a coloured alphabet. This is Robbie's bedroom, he says. We've got people around today, so it's easier for me to be locked away in a quiet space. Lovely giraffe, I say. He smiles. We got it from a local flea market. It's missing an ear. They said, you can have it for 25 quid if you keep the name Benson. So it's Benson the giraffe. You could have changed his name and they wouldn't have known any better, I say. He looks at me, mildly disapproving. But I'm not that kind of person. I'm an honest person. I couldn't do it. How's Robbie? He's great. Robbie's got a lot of personality. 
Daly tells me he loves to climb up things and jump off them. It scares the living daylights out of me. Lance says, what do you expect? You climb up things and jump off them for a living. When I look back, I wonder how my parents dealt with watching me do what I do every day and not be petrified. He says Robbie has recently learned to swim. This time last year, he was the only kid in the class who didn't want to jump in the water. Can he dive yet? No, he's not interested in that. He has packed so much into his life, it's hard to believe Daly is still only 28. I first met him when he was 17 and preparing for the London 2012 Olympics. He looked young for his age, except for the precocious six-pack, but seemed eerily mature, already a veteran. He started diving at seven, became the youngest winner of the senior 10-metre platform event at the British Championships and the European Championships at 13, competed in the Olympics at 14, won the World Championship at 15, and on it goes. Record after record broken, but that was just the half of it. His trials have been as notable as his triumphs. In 2011, his beloved father, Rob, died of cancer, aged 40. Rob seemed so different from the young Tom. He was big and bluff and didn't care what he said to anybody. All he wanted to do was protect and support his family. Tom has two younger brothers. And the young Tom did need plenty of support. He was bullied at school after becoming famous, and his mental health suffered. Apart from the extraordinary strength and gymnastic skills required for diving, the demands were relentless. Four hours training every day after school, competing regularly away from home, making sure he wasn't carrying an ounce of fat. And when it went wrong, it was horribly painful. Daly had the scars to prove it. Back in 2012, he showed me a few of his war wounds, a scar on the top of his head, another on his forehead, and a muscular stalactite of scar tissue on his upper arm where he had torn his tricep. He told me that the impact on his body, entering the water at 35 miles per hour, was like having a car crash every time you dive, and admitted, I still get scared every time I go up there. His former coach, Andy Banks, had recently said that as a youngster, Tom got so lonely and distressed away from home that he threatened to jump out of a window if he was left alone. At the London Olympics, Daly won a bronze medal in the individual 10-metre platform dive. After all he'd recently been through, it felt as if he'd won gold. On the podium, he couldn't stop grinning. He held up his bronze medal, showed it around the arena, then lifted it to heaven for his dad. I asked Daly whether he is surprised how his life has turned out. If he thinks back to the 13-year-old diving sensation, is this what he would have expected for himself? God no, he says. There are so many things I've done which I wouldn't have seen myself doing when I was younger, especially being in the forefront of LGBT stuff. Because it was irrelevant to him back then, or he never saw himself being a campaigner. A little bit of everything. I didn't understand queer history, and I've taken the time to learn and understand and listen. If he met 13-year-old Tom today, what would he say to him? Just keep being you. Keep working hard. Keep your head down and keep going. Don't worry about what other people say. Keep being you. That's what I ended up doing, but it would have been nice to have someone reassure me that it was all going to be okay. And how does he think that 13-year-old boy would respond to him? What on earth have you done? He giggles. My dream when I was a kid was to win a gold medal, and I managed that. But my dreams have evolved over the years. To get married, have a family, and if you told me I was going to knit and crochet, I would have laughed at you. But here we are. Daly only started knitting a couple of years ago, after he was seen crafting in the stands at the Olympics 
including making a fetching pouch for his medals. His skills gained him a whole new fan base of fellow knitters and crafters. Now he's got his own knitwear design company, Made with Love. When he came out in December 2013, he did it in style, on his own YouTube channel, with a homemade video called Something I Want to Say. He talked about how much his life had changed over the past couple of years. His father had died, he'd won the Olympic medal, and he had passed his A-levels, straight A's in maths, Spanish, and photography. Then it became more personal. In spring, my life changed massively when I met someone. They make me feel so happy, so safe. Everything just feels great. And that someone is a guy. You're listening to Tom Daly on his LGBTQ plus awakening. I had my head in my hands. I felt so dark about being British. By Simon Hattonstone. We're going to take a short break now. However, we'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Simon Hattonstone's interview with Tom Daly, read by Zoe Gleaves. The Sexual Offences Act 1967 legalised gay sex in England and Wales for consenting adults over the age of 21. It was finally lowered to 16 in 2000. But it continues to be criminalised in most Commonwealth countries. Daly is now fully aware of the number of these countries where he wouldn't have been able to make such a video. How does it make him feel about Britain? I half expect him to eulogise liberal British values, but he's not having any of it. He says he feels angry and deceived. I learned so much about what British rule did that was not okay. It feels as if we're trying to erase our history by saying, look how much we're bringing people together now. But we've got to acknowledge what happened. Hearing those stories, I had my head in my hands. I wanted the ground to swallow me up. I felt so dark about my relationship with being British. I came away from it with a really twisted sense about what it meant to be British. The way you talk about it, I say, you sound as if you feel personal responsibility. Yes, I do in a sense. That was the twisted part of it. I thought, what can I do? I felt very helpless to be British. He reassessed his earlier position on banning homophobic countries from hosting major events when LGBTQ athletes and campaigners told him that a ban would be another form of imperialism. They said, that's again being an oppressor. It's not allowing a country to learn and come to the table and grow. The number one thing they said they wanted was visibility. Seeing the pride flag waved is a sign of safety for lots of people. The athletes convinced him that a carrot was far more effective than a stick. So rather than an outright ban, he drew up a manifesto with their help, founded on the principle that any country could host the event if they signed a contract saying the Games had to have a pro-LGBT ethos. His manifesto states that host countries must allow pride flags to be flown and provide pride houses, temporary venues dedicated to LGBTQ inclusion, diversity and culture, along with sensitivity training for games workers. So rather than saying to certain countries, you can't host it, it's saying that if you want to host it, you have to change. Instead of banning countries, countries will rule themselves out by accepting they are not appropriate hosts because they do not fit the values of the event. Daly has already presented his proposals to the Commonwealth Games Federation. At the opening ceremony, Daly played a prominent role. 
he led out six athletes and activists carrying progress pride flags from countries where homosexuality is criminalised. Daly is planning to present his manifesto to all the major international sports events and hopes that it will eventually be adopted worldwide. Has Britain changed since Daly came out in that YouTube video? Yes and no. Things have progressed in terms of people that are out and visible. Back in 2013, there weren't many out athletes at the top of their game. People had either retired or were towards the end of their career. There's a lot more visibility in sport. And yet, he says, there is still so much progress to be made. He cites football as the most obvious example. There is not a single Premier League footballer who has come out while playing, and only one who has done so since retiring, the German international, Thomas Hitzelsberger. There is another thing that worries Daly. He believes that right-wing populism threatens the gains countries such as Britain and the US have made since the 1960s, and cites the US Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, ruling there is no constitutional right to abortion. Things are happening in the States with women's rights. Then the equality of gay marriage has been brought into question. Then not banning trans-conversion therapy in the UK. I feel we're at this pivotal moment in the queer movement in terms of holding on to our rights, which have been chipped away at. They're almost trying to catch us off guard because the younger generation has never had to fight for that before. I can see how frustrated the older generation are because of what they've fought for, and it's slowly being clawed back. We can't become complacent and we need to make many alliances. People need to come together as one. There is power in numbers. Isn't part of the problem that the LGBTQ community is at war with itself over trans rights? The level of fury between trans rights activists and gender-critical feminists astonishes me, I say. Daly nods and says it's dangerous. The LGBT community is so fractured right now over certain issues, and that's when the right are going to get us. They're going to try to break us down. And if you think they're just going to take away trans people's rights, you're wrong. It's going to go much further than that. And we have to stick together as an LGBTQIA community to stop that happening. So how can you reconcile such polarised factions? He doesn't attempt to provide an answer, but says one is needed. If we don't do something about it soon, something monumental will happen and we'll be back at square one. The right wing is very good at making people fight with each other to create tension and division and fear. If you ask the younger generation, nobody cares what somebody's gender is or what their sexuality is. Everybody just wants to be a human being. First and foremost, our planet is falling apart. If we don't sort that out and stop arguing about other things, we're not even going to have a planet to exist on. There are certain people on social media who have a very big platform who can say certain things that get sensationalised. Aren't you one of them, I say? After all, Daly has 2.2 million followers on Twitter. In June, speaking at the British LGBT Awards, where he was named Sports Personality of the Year, he condemned the decision of FINA, the Administrative Body for International Water Sport, to ban trans athletes who have been through any part of male puberty from elite women's competition. Daly said when he heard the ruling, I was furious. Anyone that's told they can't compete or can't do something they love just because of who they are, it's not on. It's something I feel really strongly about, giving trans people the chance to share their side. For so long, Daly has been regarded as a national treasure. But as he takes a more active role in the charged debate about trans athletes, it is inevitable that opinions about him will become divided. In an interview with GB News, former Olympic swimmer Sharon Davies responded to Daly's speech by suggesting that as a male athlete, he doesn't have any skin in the game. 
Tom is male, and this does not affect him in the slightest. I think we have to listen to the women, and FINA were the first governing body since 2015 to actually poll their female athletes and listen to their coaches. FINA ruled that transgender women and girls can only compete in elite women's events if they have not gone through any of the male puberty process, or before they reach the age of 12, whichever is later. Daly believes it is a crude, cruel, and dangerous decision. It puts certain athletes in a very difficult position, because they're either never going to be able to compete again, or their parents are going to have to make decisions just before their children turn 12. That puts a lot of pressure on parents to make those decisions. It's not the right message to send about sports that trans kids are not welcome if they don't transition before they are 12. Does he think that ultimately inclusion trumps fairness? No, of course not. But, as human beings, we have to be a little more thoughtful before banning people completely from something. If kids are doomed to never be able to do what they love, they may well just give up. I mentioned a 2020 study that found trans women retain a 12% advantage in running tests even after taking hormones for two years to suppress their testosterone. You just have to do all of those studies and have the full understanding before you make any decisions like that. If they find out it takes five years, fine, five years. If it takes six years, fine, then six years. But so much goes into it rather than just being able to make a decision based on one study. Your thinking sounds more nuanced than the statement you made at the award ceremony, I say. It is more nuanced. Having a conversation is different from having 30 seconds to say something. But overall, I still stand by what I said. Trans people should never be banned from sport. Is the issue dividing fellow athletes? Yes. There are certain people who have very strong opinions about it one way or another. But people are trying to make it a problem before it is a problem. He says the number of trans athletes in elite sport is minuscule. There has never been a trans diver that has stayed in diving, yet people have gone mad about it. The issue of trans women even became the battleground for the Tory leadership election. Penny Mordaunt, a contestant on Daly's ITV celebrity diving show Splash in 2014, was accused by rivals of being a woke warrior for her previous support of trans women. Mordaunt desperately tried to distance herself, insisting she has never claimed trans women are women. Is this what he means by LGBT issues being hijacked? He nods. Think of the tiny percentage of trans people in the population, and prospective Tory leaders are using that to win votes. I don't understand why people think they have to be less woke in order to lead a country. How can understanding people's feelings be a bad thing? He trails off, lost for words. Daly has always been one of life's planners. I met him again in 2015, when he just turned 21 and was living with Black, a prominent campaigner in the fight for US marriage equality. Daly was mapping out his future, a gold medal at Rio, a career in television after diving, marriage and kids at some point. He said he knew he'd be the disciplinarian because he was tougher than Black, despite the fact that his partner was 20 years older. Two years later, he and Black married, and in 2018, Robbie was born with the help of an egg donor and a surrogate. Both Daly and Black donated sperm and said they didn't want to know who the biological father was. As for the gold at Rio, that didn't materialise. He won a bronze in the synchronised 10-metre with Daniel Goodfellow. This time, coming third felt like a failure. He missed out on an individual medal, and it looked as if he was destined never to land the big one. Then, 
Last year, at the delayed Tokyo Olympics, he finally won gold with his best friend, Matty Lee, in the synchronized 10-meter, after a series of near-perfect dives. As in 2012, it was one of the emotional highs of the Games. When they realized they had won, Daly jumped into Lee's arms and wrapped his legs around him. A masked Daly wept on the podium. He also went on to win an individual bronze. Earlier this year, he told me, The morning after winning an Olympic gold medal was the first morning I woke up and really felt a sense of peace. I knew I'd done everything I wanted to do in this sport. I felt I can finally be happy now. Has he still got that sense of contentment? Yes. I don't think that will ever go away. It's going to be a year tomorrow, he says ecstatically. Daly has not dived since Tokyo, using the time to take stock. He knows it will soon be time to hang up his trunks, but he's still hoping to go out with a bang at the Paris Olympics in 2024. As for his future, he's got big plans. At least one more child, hopefully. Then, there's a fashion line. I'd love to expand Made With Love and really go into the world of fashion. And the TV career? I'd love to eventually be a host. You've already been one, I say. Yeah, but a proper one. Anton Deck vibes or Holly and Phil. Blimey, that's ambitious. Well, you've got to be ambitious. Meanwhile, his campaigning shows no sign of abating. Would he ever go into politics? Oh, I don't know. After seeing the state it's in at the moment, I don't know if I'd have the patience with the other people. It's hardly a no. He might not have many dives left in him, but it feels as if Tom Daly is just getting started. That was... Tom Daly on his LGBTQ plus awakening. I had my head in my hands. I felt so dark about being British. By Simon Hattonstone. Read by Zoe Gleaves. Finally. Hypochondria has been a looming but distant presence throughout columnist Annalisa Barbieri's life in the form of various relatives rolling list of anxieties around their perceived and sometimes real ailments. Despite this, she wasn't quite prepared for her own experience with the illness. Here she explores how she grappled with this very particular form of anxiety and eventually learned to cope with it. Read by Serena Mantegi. Surrounded, as I was growing up, by slightly health-hysterical women. How are you? I once asked an aunt over the phone. I'm on a mobile intravenous drip, was the answer. I never worried about my own health. There simply wasn't room to, anyway, because someone was always more ill. How I laughed at my friend Mark when, in our 20s, he thought he was dying due to some dodgy bolognese. Even when I smoked and developed what would now be a Google-worthy search, a searing pain in my lungs, I just lay on a tennis ball and massaged the spot. It went. So when my, as I came to call it, late-onset hypochondria hit in my 40s, I wasn't ready for it and I didn't know how terrifying it could be. In its own way, it is an illness. Strictly speaking, hypochondriasis and health anxiety are two separate malaises with overlapping features. The background to all this was deaths. Lots of them. My cousin died, aged 51, her death shrouded in whispers and secrets. Then a friend died, then another, then another. This last friend, Callie, had felt fine, gone to the doctor, and was dead two weeks later. All these friends had also been 51 when they died, and in my mind, 
it seemed impossible to get beyond that age. Then a family friend died, then my aunt, then my uncle. Throughout all this, I knew my dad was also ill, on his own final flight path, but he didn't want to be defined by his illness, and so he wasn't, and very few people knew. The secrets and the fear mixed together to make their own special kind of dynamite. Somewhere in the middle of all this, it started. The symptoms. They varied, as did the diagnoses, but one memorable day I had Parkinson's, liver cancer and Paget's disease. Some members of my maternal family have this, all in one go. It was a Thursday and I was catatonic with fear. All I could think about was, how could I do the school run while having chemotherapy? How would I cope with the tremors and shakes and the pains in my skull? I had two children, one still a baby. Could I breastfeed her on chemo? The cycle would always be the same. I would hear about someone getting ill. I would ask too many questions. I would develop the symptoms. I would be terrified and be able to tell no one, letting no light or perspective in, neither any hope of reassurance. I couldn't go to the doctor because... Callie had been fine, gone to the doctor, and then she was dead. In my mind, I was convinced if I could just avoid diagnosis, I could avoid death. It was exhausting and frightening. Eventually, something would give. I would be able to tell one person who would give me a reality check, and I would have some respite, until the whole cycle started again. Of course, there were moments I realised this must be my mind, being powerful but destructive, and the symptoms would fade. Until the next time. Then, eventually, one day, my nipple started bleeding, a symptom so extreme I knew my mind could not be responsible. The red of it all somehow made me take notice, and back at my childhood home, for some reason this emboldened me, I was able to ring not my current GP, but one removed, my previous doctor with whom I had stayed in touch. I told him my symptoms. He paused at the end of the phone as I rolled the bedroom net curtains in between finger and thumb, wondering how long I had left. I can't tell you that you don't have breast cancer, he said very slowly, but I can tell you that you need to see your GP and you need to tell him about your health anxiety. Health anxiety? Not only did I not realise I had this, but I didn't realise I could talk to my doctor about it. My GP, fortunately, was brilliant. He listened and right away put my mind at rest about some of the other diseases I was sure I had at the time and sent me off for tests for others, including on my breast, which was fine. It was a rash and cleared up, but I think of it as a godsend now. But, crucially, he also put me on the list for a course of CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. While I was waiting for CBT, my father died. I was reticent about CBT, but my therapist, Jill, was extraordinary and wonderful and it was the perfect solution. After taking my history, Jill would challenge my belief that I was ill by asking for evidence, 
I can still hear her voice now asking for hard evidence for my assumptions, and it's a technique I still practice. So the pain in my leg equals cancer would be broken down until it became, it's very unlikely to be cancer, but if the pain continues, it's sensible to go to the doctor. It sounds facile and it takes a lot of time to really work, but work it did for me. Reframing my worry, making myself face up to the fact that I had no hard evidence that I was ill, and restructuring the worry helped me deal with it in bite-sized pieces. I also learned to tell trusted people around me what was going on so they could help pop the worry. It's not advisable to tell another hypochondriac. Jill also made me stop asking about people's symptoms and taught me it was okay just to say, I'm sorry to hear that, if I heard someone was ill or had died, without also asking for a full medical history which I would then digest and embody. The combination of an ability to Google any symptom with a constant conveyor belt of new diseases and variants being served up to us at every news offering is a heady mix for those with a predisposition to health anxiety. Peter Tyra, Professor of Community Psychiatry at Imperial College London, has a special interest in health anxiety. It's called illness anxiety disorder in the US and comes under the psychiatric classification of DSM-5 and has written several papers on the subject, one in the British Medical Journal in 2016, which called it a silent disabling epidemic that was reaching epidemic proportions. In a study in 2006 carried out in certain North Nottinghamshire specialist clinics, respiratory, gastroenterology, endocrinology, 12% had excessive health anxiety. Four years later, this had risen to 20% in the same clinics. Tyra attributed this rise to cyberchondria and our addiction to Googling. People with health anxiety, he wrote, pay selective attention to the most serious explanation of symptoms, even though these may be very uncommon. It's no point telling those people they have a 1 in 1,000 chance of being ill, he said. It just convinces them they are indeed that one person. Tyra further explained to me that some people, like me, are avoidant and body-swerve medical reassurance at all costs, and it's, of course, impossible to know how many of these there are. And then, there are those who need almost constant reassurance from doctors, who are, however, not trained in mental health and so provide clinical test after test with drains on resources without providing a long-term solution. It doesn't pull the problem out at the roots. Tyra is an advocate of CBT to help with health anxiety. I told psychoanalyst Alessandra Lemmer my story. Lemmer is someone I've worked with before and I not only trusted her, but I valued her insights into the workings of my brain. What I recognise, she said, is a kind of architecture of hypochondria and often an actual experience of illness either of oneself or someone you're very close to. It's very rare that health anxiety comes out of nowhere, and it's that intersection of that encounter with vulnerability and mortality. Plus, it often comes out at a transitional point in life, 
So you often get it with young people about to go to university, or people retiring, etc. For you, it was this terrible concern about your dad. This proud, strong dad who was struggling with something that was beyond him. And when we are afraid of losing someone, we often identify with them and can take on their physical symptoms. But why couldn't I just think, I'm worried about my dad? Why this great drama? Because, expanded Lemma, as a general way of thinking about it, the body and our relationship with it is a kind of theatre, if you like, on which we stage our inner conflicts. And one of the primary reasons psychological conflicts get translated into bodily symptoms is when we don't yet have the words or even a conscious recognition of what it is that troubles us. Lemma explained that talking to someone, the doctor, a therapist or a trusted friend, can help because you can start to translate those symptoms into words, which can then start to dissolve the worry. For me, it was like starting to let the light into those dark corners. But in the beginning, it was so hard to talk about what was going on because I had this irrational fear that as long as I didn't say it, nothing bad would happen. The hypochondria literally felt like a monster in my body that I had to appease by staying quiet. It's now been six years that I've been free of this, and that long since I've been able to write about it. And yes, I did reach age 51. I'm still vigilant and keep myself in check. While writing this, I looked up the symptoms of Paget's disease and could immediately feel myself turning the corner into health anxiety street again. So I stopped reading. Although the monster in me now largely sleeps, it can reawaken when I'm anxious and need to feel in control. And one thing I've learned through all this is that, perversely, worrying that you're dying is a weird way of trying to feel in control. That was How I Learned to Tame My Hypochondria by Annalisa Barbieri, read by Serena Manteghi. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Serena Manteghi and Zoe Gleaves and presented by me, Savannah Oyewede Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.